Hello and welcome to this week's Politics Jam, where we take an in-depth look at the week's news and hot topics of the political science dens. With myself, Jeevan, joined as always by Michael. Michael, how are you doing today and have you captured or imbibed the Olympic spirit in any way? I have, you know, so I'm one of those people that get super, super hooked on the Olympics. So like, I think track and field is always the best part of any Olympics. So that's, you're often more invested in like the last few weeks. But I was invested from right, right from the off. So I was watching the triathlon, the swimming, even at like really random times in the morning, I like make sure I'm up just to watch a particular event. So I really, really did enjoy it actually. And a bit gutted this over because I got so invested in the different athletes and their stories. And like, it's been five years since the last one as well. So this one felt particularly particularly special because of that, and also Britain did perform quite well. Some some really fantastic stories emerging from like the kind of Team GB side of things as well. But also like I guess the Olympics and and the reason we all love it is because you get to kind of see these sports you wouldn't necessarily watch all the time, and also like these kind of stories from all over the world. Like athletes who have trained five six years just for this one moment in their lives. So yeah, I'm I'm like bang bang into the Olympics. I've loved it this time. How have you found it, you? I should say. Oh, it was, I mean, I agree. I think it's great. I should say to our listeners, Mike is surprisingly competitive on a sports <laughs> field. I played five or side against White once, and it was like genuinely, Mike is a different person. I was on top of the team, and I was like, Jesus Christ. This is, wow. Wow. Okay. And tone it down. He's aggressive on the ball. Uh, it's what I would say. Uh, I do agree with the Olympics. I still. <laughs> I have a major issue with dressage. I don't understand why it's a sport. Oh my um, gosh, same, same. I mean, I get it's hard, but so is eating 50 hot dogs in an hour. Like, that doesn't mean it's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying you win a gold medal because it's an Um, I probably couldn't, but I don't think anyone should, I think is my <laughs> thing. And the same is true for dressage. Um, if we get loads of horse people, like, angry at me soon. Anyway, but you're out there. I don't apologise, screw it. Anyway. Uh, and today, guys, we're delighted to be joined by a really special guest, uh, Robert Saunders, who is a modern British historian at Queen, Queen Mary University of London, uh, who also regularly writes the New Statesman and Prospects. I'm sure you've already all heard of him. And we're here today to discuss two years of Boris Johnson in office. Uh, Rob, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. I'm embarrassed to say that I actually haven't seen a single second of the Olympics, um, which wasn't deliberate. They just somehow passed me by. I think I'm waiting for them to make exam marking an Olympic sport, and when they do, I'll be there. <laughs> Are you really good? Well, you know, I feel I've got some experience under my belt. I'm getting faster. Oh, that's good. Can we pass those over to you in the future? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's no harm in trying, is there, guys? Like... Oh, fantastic. Okay, cool. Well, I suppose today, then, to kick us off about, like, Boris Johnson, how he's done this kind of over the last two years. Rob, how about you? What do you think his legacy has been after two years in office? Well, I think whether you like the man or not, you have to say he's achieved three big things. In He's taken Britain out of the EU. He has won the Conservatives their first really substantial general election win since 1987. And he's remade the Tory party as a much more explicitly populist and nationalist entity. And those three things are going to shape British politics for at least the next 10 years. So while we might not always think of Boris Johnson as a particularly substantial political figure, I think there's a case for saying, actually, he's a prime minister that matters. 
Yeah, I would agree with Rob there. I think, like, obviously the first two things that Rob mentioned there, the Brexit referendum is a, a massive part of his of his legacy and, and kind of getting Brexit done, if you like, and also kind of winning the, the Conservatives, that big majority um, is a, a massive part of, it, of his legacy. I do think he, the final point as well Rob makes there about, you know, the kind of populist term, the Conservative Party, I do think that will be a kind of defining part of the legacy, especially as we move on, I'm sure we'll speak about a bit, that a bit later. But I do think that his legacy and part of his legacy is the erosion of democratic standards. Like he has shown a, a contempt for democratic institutions. You know, Parliament is central to our democracy and the idea that, you know, he tried to subvert Parliament and, and avoid parliamentary scrutiny to get Brexit done was 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 problematic. And it's part of a, a global trend of kind of weird events we've seen in recent years. You know, the storming of the Capitol building comes to mind as well. And look, we have kind of had concerns about the state of democracy in the past, but this does feel a bit different and something that we as democratic citizens should be should be aware of and and kind of push back against if you like i think on this yeah i think that's both really good points i think on the brexit thing there's a real irony in the fact that he's led to much more positive views on migration within the uk and for the european union across the continent like in one sense boris johnson might have saved the european union in a really ironic manner like everyone saw us take ourselves out and no one else wants to do it. Le Pen on the continent is no longer talking about us leaving the EU. The UK has much more positive views on migration, certainly. And on the form of politics itself, I think you're right. And there's a form of uh, personalised, quasi-corrupt politics here, where who you know is far more important than what you do. So we've seen uh, Robert Jenrick, the Housing Secretary, help a Tory donor avoid £45 million in tax. The £1 billion town fund going to 40 out of 45 areas by Conservative MPs, as well as the Downing Street flat refurbishment, hundreds of thousands of pounds being paid by a donor for some unknown reason. And I don't think you give someone like 100 grand just because they're your mate. I think you expect something in return for that. And there's a real question about that. Rob, you've written an article about this recently, about the kind of standards in public life. Where is it that you think kind of Johnson has done and why is that the case? I do think there's been a big change in the style of government. And <clears throat> we often talk about this as if it's about the decline of democracy in Britain. And I'm less convinced by that. But I think how we might want to see it is as a shift away from liberal democracy towards authoritarian democracy. That Boris Johnson has quite a clear view that he embodies the will of the people, that he has won an electoral mandate, and that those that stand against that are in some sense enemies of democracy itself. So where the courts stand in the way, they have to be constrained. Where parliament stands in the way, it has to be suspended. If protest is being annoying, then you have to legislate in order to make serious annoyance of the protest illegal. So there is a stripping back of the kind of counterbalancing elements of politics. But it's not being done, in his mind at least, as an attack on democracy. It's being done in the name of democracy, so that the government can carry out what he always calls the people's priorities. Yeah, I think you actually, you, you summed this up, this kind of what you're des describing, Rob, quite well in a tweet once where you, you called him an ego libertarian. So it's like he wants no constraints on his power or his own liberty. Um, and if that means proroguing parliaments, if that means attacking the courts, he'll do it basically. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, he is, essentially he thinks he's acting in, in, in the name of the people and he's acting for the nation he's the the one politician that has a nation's hopes and interests at heart so he believes by proroguing parliament to get brexit done by you know attacking the courts by attacking democratic institutions 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm absolutely sick of hearing that Boris Johnson is at heart a liberal. You know, this is somebody who is legislating to restrict the right of protest. This is somebody who shut Parliament down, who in the last couple of weeks has talked about bringing back chain gangs as a response to crime. I really don't think that Boris Johnson is a liberal. What he is is a rule breaker. And he's someone who admires other rule breakers and isn't puritanical about rule breaking by other people. But exactly as you've just said, who wants as few restraints on his own conduct as possible. And if that means legislating or doing illiberal things to achieve that, then so be it. Okay, that's that's a really good point. So maybe it's worth thinking about what, what Johnsonism would be in that sense and what it could be. Because to my mind, I often think that he's a lot... I mean, Trump is the easiest comparison, even though it's obviously for obvious reasons not... He's not quite as extreme as Trump or quite as much of a danger as Trump. But in one sense, in the same way that Trumpism, I don't think was really a programme of government, but about the personality of the man. I think the same thing is true of Boris Johnson. And that actually, to some extent, the character of his administration, as every administration reflects the character of the principal. So who the person at the top is, is kind of how the premiership itself ends up taking shape. And here we have, you know, Johnson is chaotic. He prefers sloganeering to government. And he's good at winning elections, but he doesn't have a huge interest in governing. And also, therefore, I don't think policy-wise, he's actually got a lot done or a lot of wins that his voters would have liked yet. Now, it hasn't hit him electorally, but otherwise... You know, we had the levelling up speech where nothing has really come out of it. We've had the G7 where he's supposed to get £100 billion a year for climate change. We only got, I think, two at the end of it all. We're supposed to get to net zero, but we're really far away from that as well. And there's another huge amount of issues coming out in the post-COVID era. What are your views in terms of what Johnsonism is or isn't in that sense? So I don't think that... Johnsonism exists as a policy programme in the way that Thatcherism did. But I think there is a set of beliefs about the way that politics works that are important. So if you read Johnson's historical writing, he has an extraordinary faith in the power of personality and in the power of self-belief. So if you read his book on Churchill, really the story of the Second World War as he presents it is that one great man had the courage to believe and set out a vision for his country, and that that carried it to success. There's no sense anywhere in the book that Britain won the war or was on the winning side in the war because it was a military, imperial, and economic superpower, or because of the importance of planning. It's really about the sense it was a country of a tremendous sex drive and a you know, great will to win. And in that respect, when people say that Boris Johnson doesn't do detail, or that there isn't any substance to something like levelling up. I don't think he would totally repudiate that. I think his vision of leadership is that you set out the goal and you believe in it, and that by itself, by force of will, pulls results behind it. I, I would agree. I think Johnsonism isn't this kind of concrete set of policy ideas, but it's more an approach to politics. So I often view it as this kind of positivity in the face of, of adversity or, or opposition, for example. So like... You know, with Brexit, is he's going to get Brexit done in, and all the naysayers are going to have to deal with it, right? You know, during the pandemic, it's this kind of misplaced optimism maybe about, oh, it's going to be over by the summer. I think so when, when he spoke about it last March, it was, it's going to be over in the summer. It'll be over in December by Christmas and this kind of misplaced optimism, right? I also think the way he conducts himself is, is quite central to Johnsonism. So 
Jeepin spoke about kind of personality here. And I think Johnson is an impulsive liar. You know, he lies with, with complete impunity, really. And he's, he's and again, I think he does it, Rob, because it's like, I'm doing this for the people. I'm doing this for democracy, if you like. And he's 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 happy to openly bend the rules and, and to lie um, consistently. And I do think that kind of, kind of I mean, listen, politicians have, have, have lied in the past before. You know, lying is not new in politics, but I think he lies so, so routinely. And he's just so unashamed of lying, even when it's blatant. But I think that is something that is slightly different. Um, and I think Johnson is someone who is, you know, we've spoken about the kind of disregard for the rule of law and for, for liberal institutions. But again, I think what's what's quite clever is that he does often use the language of democracy um, when it comes to kind of justifying his attacks on the rule of law for kind of democratic institutions. And yeah, I think ultimately, like at the moment, we we don't really see a kind of concrete sort of policy that we can point to that, you know, highlight Johnsonism to us. But I think his approach to politics is kind of personality-driven style of politics, the positivity, positivity in the face of any opposition and, and uh, yeah, the lying. I think those are all kind of the core tenets of his approach to politics and what I would I would discuss as, as Johnsonism. But I think there is maybe another side to that. I mean, I think Johnson is in some ways like a kind of political Rorschach test. You know, where you make an ink blot and one person looks at it and sees a monster and someone else looks at it and sees a cuddly teddy bear. And I think if you don't like Johnson, and I get the sense that none of us are natural Johnson supporters, it's very difficult to see what people like about him. And yet clearly quite a lot of the electorate looks at Johnson and firstly, they think firstly they find this optimism really attractive. That so much of the news is negative, so much of it is bad news. And here's someone who talks up his country and who's always positive about the future and is actually a very skillful storyteller. They also see someone who gets things done. That we can talk about whether there's a substance to his politics or not. But he got Brexit done. He got the vaccine done. There is a certain record of achievement there. And I think the the danger is that those of us who you know, perhaps for very good reasons, are very alarmed by Johnson, find it quite difficult to understand why people are drawn to him and just sort of think they haven't realised yet that he has all of these flaws. I think this is a really important point because often like people who are vehemently opposed to Johnson just can't get their heads around why he's popular. And I think they their hatred for him blinds them from the fact that actually there are some kind of real reasons why he is popular and why his politics does resonate with such a, a big group of the British public. You know, the positivity is something that really does, especially amidst the pandemic, maybe, it's something that people are, might be quite drawn to, actually. And he does have this record of, of getting things done. You know, he, he again, for, for many of his supporters, you know, he got a Brexit done. You know, that's the kind of key part of his legacy that people might point to. So, yeah, he, again, he does have, yeah, like you said, he has this, this record of, of, of getting things done. And there is there are, there are people who really do like his politics. There was, I mean, one thing I find slightly alarming and worrying, like you say, about getting things done, but we've also seen in quite recent by-elections where people's view are view is in marginal constituencies, while Boris Johnson will spend money on us if we have a Conservative MP. Now, for those of us who are concerned about good government and realise the dangers of having a system where who you vote for depends on whether or not you do well, yeah, that's kind of a, a regression when it comes to how we are governed and where things are, where resources are allocated. But if you're in that particular marginal constituency, you probably turn around and go, actually, I'm very much happy for this to happen because I want better things for my local area, right? Which is, you know, I can certainly see the kind of the thinking there behind it. 
One thing I do sometimes wonder about in terms of Boris Johnson getting things done is, can he get things done for his political coalition in a way that will keep satisfying them? Because I think in one sense, you know, you've got this problem where on the one hand, he wants, you know, high spending in the left behind areas, which is kind of the marginal constituency that he's won, and also low taxes for the pro business community. And for his party in particular, that seems like a problem. You have this ideological weddedness to a small state, a lot of Thatcherites in that government or who grew up in Thatcherism alongside a voting base who wants higher spending. And that's a problem I see for Johnson and Johnsonism in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. But then I suppose it is the nature of two-party politics that they're always very broad coalitions that to some extent are always pulling in different directions. You know, there, there, were, there were plenty of Tories in the 1980s who were deeply unhappy with what Margaret Thatcher was doing. Um, there were plenty of Labour Party members who were unhappy with Corbyn or who were very happy with Corbyn and are unhappy with how things are now. So I, I don't think it's a new problem to try to hold together um, an electoral coalition of that kind. And of course, one of the best ways of doing that is by convincing people that you are at least better than the alternative. And another thing that Johnson is very good at is at painting the opposition as the real threat. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, what tends to be called the culture wars is about, that you can convince the electorate that they might not like you particularly, but that you are better than all of those people who want to destroy your statues, torch your stately homes, repaint the White Cliffs of Dover, or whatever the latest absurd story on the front page of the Daily Telegraph is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And maybe it's worth kind of thinking about that when we kind of think about what will happen for the rest of, of Johnson's term. Because for me, and the culture war thing, we've seen kind of research come out on this in particular, which is that actually most of the British public aren't that concerned with the culture war. It's about half the British public, kind of half split between kind of traditionalists who are generally older, who thought that empire was a good thing, and another kind of 25%, if you like, who are progressives. So like 25% traditionalists, 25% progressives, roughly speaking, who are kind of on the other side of this culture war. And actually on the other side, people aren't very interested in that culture war. And in one sense, it seems like you can win an election without them. I wonder... I suppose the general rule, if you can't make your voters richer, you make them angry. And we've seen that in the United States kind of work out really, really well for the Republican Party. One reason why I think it might be less successful for Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom is in part because the numbers say actually people don't seem to care as much. We don't have the same types of racial divisions as well that kind of lead to these uh, these problems. And we don't have like a Fox News style alternative echo chamber right in one sense the things about statues etc i don't think would swing a lot of votes if if it wasn't a debate right i don't think it's winning any votes i think it might inflame the base i think it might distract people from certain things but i don't think it it helps you win anything more and i think uh, a kind of like you say a clever or rather the alternative a clever opposition kind of walks away from that debate and doesn't engage in it but i suppose the thing about culture wars is that they're not necessarily about the precise issues themselves. They're not necessarily really about statues or about the history curriculum. They're part of a much larger branding exercise. So it's about saying that the Labour Party isn't like you. The Labour Party isn't concerned with ordinary people and ordinary life. It's a, it's obsessed with marginal concerns and being ashamed of its past and ashamed of its country um, in the same way that the loony left in the 1980s 
wasn't really about the specific questions of what was being done in particular councils. It was about framing the opposition in a particular way. And I think the thing about cultural wars, firstly, is they're cheap. So in that sense, you don't have that problem that you identified before about, you know, do you spend money or do you do you cut taxes? But they also play to one of Johnson's definite strengths, which is storytelling, that Johnson is a newspaper columnist in politics. He's got a very powerful sense of how to tell a story that telegraph readers like. And one half of that is a positive story. So he's very good at knitting together Brexit the vaccine success and the other parts of his government to say, however, fallaciously that they are connected. But the other is a negative story that says, OK, I'm I'm a shopping trolley, but look across the aisle and you've got someone who wants to close Britain down altogether. I think that's a really good point. Actually, I think on the on the cultural point and specifically, I think what I would say is you want an opposition that that doesn't engage, but also pays patriotism in like a a normal way, right? The common sense position and the common sense position being that actually statues are a sign of our history. We don't want to pull them down, but also this is a massive distraction of what's really important. And I think, like you say, a good storyteller, a good storyteller paints the government as doing something slightly bonkers and weird, like spending £200 million on a yacht and then talks about why that isn't the patriotic thing to do. And I think actually one problem is, is that I think I said earlier, a, a good opposition doesn't engage in a culture war. I think that's actually quite the right way to put it. I think they tell a better story about Britain is and also talks about the things that unite us rather than divides us. And in particular, I would think uh, a really successful example of that would have been like Barack Obama 2008. You know, there are no red states or blue states. We're a United States of America. That's someone who won a culture war against the right wing who was determined to pull them apart. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Labour Party has a long history of getting patriotism wrong. And that what it tends to do is to accept that patriotism is what Tories say it is. And that that means that the choice is either to reject it altogether or to imitate it, to stand in front of a Union Jack and you know talk about how proud you are of our boys, rather than actually saying patriotism doesn't have to be conservative, that there are progressive versions of patriotism. That just as you can have a strong sense of family without turning into the Cray twins, you can have a strong sense of country without turning into Marc Francois. And that you can say that there is nothing patriotic about a model of politics that sets out to divide one section of the country against another. That there is nothing patriotic about putting your money in tax havens overseas. There is nothing patriotic about running down public services. That there is a version of patriotism that the left can propagate, but it very rarely does that. It tends to frame to, to position the whole debate on Tory ground. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So on the point about kind of dividing the nation with the culture, I do think that's a, if we are speaking about maybe what Johnsonism could become moving forward, I do think that is quite central to Johnsonism. So kind of pissing groups against each other. You know, it was that kind of education committee report that came out that said that white privilege was actually something that was holding back, you know, white working class students at school. And it's the idea that, you know, returns that these Black Lives Matter activists or these kind of anti-racist activists are using are affecting, you know, white working class kids and actually trying to pit, you know, working class groups against each other. But I do think that is quite central to the kind of culture war and that kind of cultural politics, if you like. Um, and maybe it presents this kind of divided nation, of divided version of Britain is what I call it. So I think the best opposing um, kind of vision of Britain to Johnson's vision of Britain is the, the vision of Britain offered by Britain's footballers, the English footballers. So, you know, 
they kind of got caught in this kind of culture war where, you know, it's to take the knee and, you know, they're Marxists, all of this sort of stuff. And actually, these footballers just came out and said, we're just fighting for a, a more inclusive vision of Britain, a, a Britain where, you know, everyone can, can feel they belong. And they've, they've spoke, they've, you know, Marcus Rashford's advocacy on free school meals, for example, Raheem Sterling on, on anti-racism, Jordan Henderson's done some fantastic work with the NHS and, and food banks. And actually, that's the kind of competing vision for Britain from, from Johnson's vision of Britain, which is this kind of cultural vision of Britain, which does pick groups against each other. Um, and yeah, I do, I do find the division of Britain that's presented by, by England's football is quite, quite compelling. And that's the kind of opposition story I've, I've kind of taken from the last last 18 months or so. Mm, that has been a much a much stronger story. One thing I think about as we think about, you know, culture wars are cheap, like you say. The other thing to think about in terms of where Boris Johnson will be in the next kind of two or three years in the next election thing. So they're kind of two, two different things. The first of which is to say that on the economics, if house prices are rising and given this political coalition, that's really important, and wages are growing then he probably has a better than even chance of winning in general, right? Generally speaking, um, governments win when wages are growing at an election time. They only don't when something goes really badly wrong. So in 1997, New Labour wins because the Conservatives preside over the 92-93 ERM crisis, as well as the kind of general mismanagement of that government. New Labour in 2010, just after the financial crisis, obviously. On the economics, you would be thinking you know, looking at it, things would be getting better in three years time because the fall after COVID has been so large. So you'd really expect Johnson have to mess up in some other way in order to not maintain power. And that is possible, but it's certainly um, it's certainly more tricky. But there are some some worries there, right? And that's not just around, I think Brexit could go quite badly wrong. There's a general incompetence as well, uh, COVID, but also public services. There's going to be a huge fight with Johnson and his chancellor, because Johnson wants to spend a lot more money, obviously. And the chancellor has just baked in £14 billion of spending cuts. And that's at a time when violent crime has doubled over the past five years, when there's, I think, 4 million NHS operations backlog. It's not clear to me, or rather, there's kind of two different sides of this, one of which is you'd expect the economy to be growing at the time of the next election. So that would help him. On the other side, there are some real danger points and flashpoints for a government that wants to win again. Yes, and I think another danger, I agree with you, I think there, there are lots of paths from where we are now that lead to another comfortable Johnson victory at the next election. But if we're looking for potential storm clouds, one would be that we have to remember where Johnson came from as Conservative leader, that in the summer of 2019, the Conservative Party was looking into the abyss. It had just polled 8% of the vote in the European elections. It was clinging to power really by the skin of Jeremy Corbyn's teeth. Almost the only thing that was holding it in power was the conservative fear of the alternative. And at that moment, it jettisoned everything except election winning. And it went for Johnson on the basis that he could win for them. And that is Johnson's claim to the loyalty of the Conservative Party. So if it looks like he's not going to win, if it looks like he might actually be a problem for the Conservative Party. It's not clear that there is really any bedrock of, of personal loyalty to him, that the Conservative Party will remove him if they think that he is an obstacle to re-election. And so in that sense, he has to keep, a bit like Jose Mourinho, he has to keep his squad believing that he's a winner, because if that belief f falls, then it's not clear there's really very much left. 
one thing we haven't spoken about yet actually is about this general idea of of party management because there is a problem that kind of all PMs run into and Blair makes this point once where he goes well the longer you go on the more ministers you have to sack the more people you annoy on the back benches the more people realize they're not going to get promoted and therefore people get restless with Johnson like you say he's a winner so they'll only stick with him when they think he's winning but there's also another issue in the fact that because he's not, well, he almost one sets of the opposite problem to Blair, because he's not sacking any of these cabinet ministers, anyone who's young and ambitious is looking at this Johnson government thinking, I'm not getting anywhere with this guy in charge. The moment I see another alternative, it becomes a lot more attractive to jump. And I'm slightly surprised on the party management side, he hasn't yet seen that as being an issue. Like, I don't know who the young, faceless, uh, ambitious Conservative MPs are, but look, there are 200 of them not in government, right? And I'm sure that there are 200 of them who want to be in government. And so I don't understand, to some extent, why he hasn't yet acted in that quite normal way and start sacking some people. And there are some people there who, by the way, definitely need to be sacked. Well, I was actually talking to a youngish Conservative MP recently, and it very much fitted that model, that having finished telling me what a disaster Johnson was and how nothing was going to be achieved over the next three years. He then mentioned that he was very much hoping to be promoted in the next reshuffle and was looking forward to a job in government. And yes, unless Johnson starts clearing the dead wood, he's going to increasingly annoy those people. But I wouldn't be too fussed about that if I was Johnson, because fundamentally his support base doesn't lie in the parliamentary party. His support base lies among the membership and among the conservative electorate. And I think that's the constituency he has to keep on side. You know, power has moved in British politics away from parliamentarians towards their memberships. And as long as they support him, then I think the parliamentary party, by and large, will stay quiet. But if there's a sense that he's losing them, and this is perhaps where the the kind of paradoxical impulses of Johnsonism are a problem, that you know he wants to legislate on things like fatty foods in a way that a certain kind of conservative doesn't doesn't like. So if he starts to lose the membership support, then at that point his lack of support among the parliamentary party becomes a problem. But I think not until then. Yeah, I think the membership support is, is quite important. And I think we've spoken about this before, G, but part of the reason he hasn't actually sat people who, and he's kind of defended the indefensible at times, is because that's his way of almost building loyalty. Because like we said, Johnsonism is about more an approach to politics or like a kind of mood when it comes to politics. It's not just kind of concrete sort of policy ideas. So maybe ministers haven't, aren't particularly loyal to him because of this, you know, these these policy, these concrete policy ideas. But they're loyal to him because he's loyal to them. So Priti Patel, for example, with the bullying allegations, he defended her. You know, Gavin Williamson, you know, definitely should have been sacked after the A-level results scandal, but he stayed loyal to him. I mean, even Dominic Cummings, he backed quite, quite heavily after the, the Bernard Castle um, scandal and, and the whole, you know, breaking lockdown rules. So he is loyal to those around him and that's how he kind of builds this loyalty and and, and his trust with it with, with, within the party. But yeah, I, I, I do agree with Rob. I do think it's a problem when he only when he loses the kind of members and, and their support with his... It's weird because he does at times act in ways that conservative and politicians wouldn't. You know, he can be, you know, the kind of nanny state idea, maybe, if you like, and getting quite in, getting involved in issues that conservative politicians maybe might not have in the past. So it is a kind of paradox of Johnsonism, if you like, that's to, that I quite find quite fascinating that could irritate some conservative members. And I think, again, 
we, we maybe need to think about Johnson as a symptom of things happening in British politics rather than as their cause. And one of them is the presidentialization of the premiership. And that's been going on for a while, but it's really accelerated in the last few years. That Johnson operates something much more like a US administration than like a traditional British cabinet. The most important members of his of his administration, other than Rishi Sunak, have been David Frost and Dominic Cummings, neither of whom were in the House of Commons. And we know that there's an interest at the top of government at the moment in the idea that cabinet ministers could be appointed from outside parliament in the same way that they are in the US. And I think that probably is the direction we're moving, in which the parliamentary party increasingly is just a kind of electoral college stroke support squad. The cabinet comes from outside and your own authority as prime minister comes from outside, that comes from the party members. And the fact that Boris Johnson is the first prime minister in British history to be put in office by party members, I think is is an, an interesting symptom of that shift. Would the same not be true of Gordon Brown? No, it or... could have been true with Gordon Brown, but Gordon oh, Brown course, was yeah. unopposed. So he was elected unopposed by the parliamentary party. But yes, if someone like John McDonnell, who tried, had got enough nominations, then it would have happened then. Yeah, that's right. Gee, I forgot about that. Um, cool. That seems great. Guys, what are our, our final thoughts then on Boris Johnson and his time in office? Yeah, I guess my concluding thoughts focus on, you know, we've spoken about Johnsonism maybe as a mood or you know, it's not a concrete as a policy ideas, but I do think the Queen's speech, which was delivered on May the 11th, which included 28 bills, I do think that gives us a pretty good indication of what Johnsonism from policy point of view could become. So, you know, the policing crime and sentencing courts bill will give, you know, police officers new powers to restrict process in really unprecedented ways and also kind of criminalise the living standards and living conditions, sorry, of, you know, Gypsy, Roma and traveller communities. And the Electoral Commission Bill, or Electoral Integrity Bill, sorry, includes proposals about voter ID. And, you know, the government say these proposals are about tackling electoral force. It's kind of linked to, you know, Rob's point earlier about they frame these maybe authoritarian ideas in the language of democracy. And it's about attacking electoral fraud. But actually, you know, electoral fraud at the ballot box is a, a pretty insignificant problem in, in British politics. And voter ID would make it you know, difficult for the most marginalised people to vote, even if ID is provided for free by authorities or local councils. You know, there is no need to add an additional barrier to voting um, in, in Britain, really. And I do think you know, Boris Johnson's kind of authoritarian instincts have been laid bare by some of the bills that were announced in the Queen's speech. Um, and it does involve, you know, maybe an expansion of his power and, you know, a crackdown on citizens and the ability to hold him to account, you know, through voter ID and through, you know, a crackdown on protests. And I do think moving forward again, you know, the culture will be quite central to his politics when it comes to, to race and racism. I do think race and racism is an issue that's going to, you know, dominate when it comes to an, an election in, in a few years' time. I do think it will be something that will be quite central to debates. And I think Johnson will continue to adopt this cultural approach to race and racism, which frames you know, Black Lives Matter activists and anti-racist activists as attacking British culture, as attacking British values. Whenever we have discussions about the kind of statues that occupy our public spaces, they'll be framed as, you know, saboteurs and people who, who don't have Britain's best interests at heart. And that's going to be quite central to his politics moving forward as well, as these issues, you know, continue to dominate politics, really. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I suppose my final thoughts are, you know, on the one hand, looking back, it's hard to think about what would have happened had COVID not happened in Johnson's first year. And I wonder if kind of the effects of Brexit would have been more more keenly felt and if people were a bit more 
sick of having that debate. If Brexit was done, why are we still talking about it? But as it happens, we are in a in a COVID world. At this point in time, it's not really clear to me how that does or doesn't affect his popularity going forward. People kind of evaluate experiences by the end of the experience. That looked great when the vaccine was going well. Now it might look less great depending on what happens in the next kind of few months, and particularly around long COVID. The second of which is that I think in the present, like Johnson's style of governing, as we discussed, does harm our country and our democracy um, if you don't play by the rules and no one else has to. And that kind of personalised politics where who you know is a lot more important than what you do uh, is the type of politics we see in developing nations and it really damages economic development. You know, the point at which it's not really de- dependent on whether or not you innovate or you have a good business idea, it's about whether or not you can pay the right person off. That really damages economic development and certainly damages well the political and legal system. And finally, I suppose you have kind of two opposing forces, generally speaking, in governments. The first of which is they get less popular over time. And the other is that incumbents win. And the balance of those two will have uh, a large impact for Johnson as they do for every PM, uh, even if he has an outrageous character. Uh, Rob, as the guest, you get to have the last word, buddy. So why don't you tell us what your, your final thoughts are? Well, something that really struck me when the headlines started to appear about Johnson's second anniversary as prime minister, I just thought, gosh, is that all? It feels much longer. And I think the reason that it feels so long is because it's actually been an action-packed two years. You've had the whole parliamentary crisis around Brexit, a general election, a withdrawal agreement, a trade agreement, Mm. the purging of the parliamentary party, the suspension of parliament, and of course, COVID and everything around that. But in a sense, Johnson's first two years have been defined by the crises to which he has had to respond. And so I think that the two challenges going forward are firstly, what is Johnson for after Brexit and after COVID? And there's going to be a lot of culture warring. There's going to be a lot of slaying of dragons in relation to picking fights with with the EU. Um, There's going to be a lot of sort of jollity and a certain amount of pork for um, for Conservative constituencies, but is that really enough? So I think that's one challenge. And I think the other one is that the constant picking of fights with Europe over things like the Northern Ireland Protocol obviously does play well with a section of the Conservative electorate, but there was also a point at which it unravels the core claim of the last general election, which was to get Brexit done. The sense that you could say to a nation that was sick of Brexit, we can do it and move on. And as I think Johnson put it, spatchcocking it off our back. Well, if in 2023 you are still trying to renegotiate the protocol, there is a potential political cost to that, I think, among some people who were supportive of, Bre- of Brexit. So those might be the two kind of clouds on the horizon for Johnson. Fantastic. That's great. Um, cool. And then to wrap ourselves off, Rob, uh, what is your, your jam of the week? Uh, well, I'm probably more a classical music man. But uh, I'm partial to a little bit of Taylor Swift. And I suppose uh, for any academic, this is me trying. It's probably a bit of an anthem for anyone who's sitting looking at their marking pile at the moment. (laughs) I've just destroyed my reputation on there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. And hey, look, I'm sure Taylor will be thrilled uh, by your choice. So uh, we'll get in touch and let her know. I'd like to think. Rob, thanks for being on. You've been absolutely fantastic. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.